Good morning, everyone. Hey, my name's Austin. I'm the pastor here at our North Raleigh location, and I just want to thank you for being a part of LifePoint this morning. We're going to continue on in a teaching series that we've called Forget You, and the whole kind of idea behind this series and this title is that oftentimes there is a person we feel, believe, and strive to be that God desires us to become, and and, and along the journey of trying to get there, sometimes we find that we fail in the process. A lot of times there's a person we try under our own power to become and yet feel like we can't ever get there on our own. At the end of the day, a lot of times we find ourselves just tired and worn out and left with the question, how do I live a life that looks like what God has called me to live? See, there's this person that seems so natural Paul talks about this person, calls it the natural self, and then there's the person that God produces for us. And a lot of times we're overly aware of this tension between where we want to be, where God desires us to be, and how reality plays out. And so what we've begun to do is look at this truth that we found in Galatians chapter 5 that says that God can do new things within us. God can create us to be new kinds of people. As a matter of fact, I would tell you today that God can so radically transform your life when his, his spirit moves into your person, that the old person becomes a forgotten person, someone that you could look at and go, you know what, I don't even remember that person, forget you. As he changes us, he recreates us, makes us someone new. This, this whole thing comes from this verse, Galatians 5, through 23. Paul talks about what he calls the fruit of the Spirit, what transformation takes place when God's Holy Spirit lives in our lives. It says this, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. It goes on even to say that against these things, there are no laws, that the things that every culture and society has aspired to be can be produced and sustained only through a relationship with Jesus Christ and God's Holy Spirit living in our lives. Week one, we said this, that God can produce within me what I cannot produce myself. And so let me just be totally transparent and real. What we're going to talk about this morning is one of these or two of these fruit that God produces within us, these characteristics, these qualities that for me are at times, for me, maybe even right now in life, are the most difficult for me to attain on my own. They're the ones that God lately has been saying, hey, would you chill out so that I can produce this within you? And my hope today is not only in my own life, but in your life as well. We can experience God produce these two things, joy and peace at a level of which we cannot sustain or create on our own. So as we dive in, let me just take a moment and pray for you and pray for our time together. God, would you do what we cannot? If you were a God who only did what we can do on our own, we would have no need of you, yet you are high above, you are greater, you are holy, you are perfect. And so God, create in us more of who you are. Pour your spirit into our lives. Give us hope in you that produces peace and joy that we can find nowhere else and have your way bringing glory to your name here with us this morning. Amen. So a few weeks before Ashley and I went to adopt our son, Miles, um, we had this experience that 
It was a little rocky, if I'm going to be real about it. Uh, we, we had a nine-week uh, warning that we were going to adopt Miles, which in adoption world is a pretty long period of time. Sometimes you just get a phone call overnight, and you're like, hey, hop on a plane, go show up somewhere. Uh, so we were grateful for that. But when you compare that to nine months that the normal couple gets to plan out what like you know future plans look like and adjust and get their minds wrapped around having a new kid in their house, it's kind of a slim window, and I was struggling with it. Um, if there's any perks to infertility whatsoever, the one perk is this. No one else spends your money and you do whatever you want. And so for a decade, if we wanted to go out of town, we threw our bags in the car, we hopped in the car, and we drove wherever we wanted to go. We didn't have to ask anyone. We didn't have to worry about anything. We spent money when we wanted to spend it. We, I mean, life was fancy free. I mean, it was pretty good living. Ashley worked. I worked. We had no responsibilities. It was pretty sweet. And the closer we got to the day that we went and picked up Miles, the more aware I became of the fact that someone else was going to have a say in my life. And it started to feel a little disturbing. As a matter of fact, the day before we had this conversation, I had run the spreadsheet. I'm not a planner. I should have done that on week one. I waited until we were like two or three weeks out. How much is a child going to cost? It was significantly alarming. I was a little bothered by it. And to be honest, I was really way off base. He cost way more than that. And it's good that I didn't know at the time because I would have probably died right there. I mean, that would have been the end of it. And so we're driving home, maybe three blocks from home. Ashley, the sweetest woman in the world, looks over at me and she said, hey, Austin, I'm not sure I want to work as much as I have been when Miles comes home. Now, that's a reasonable question that a reasonable man would have answered in a reasonable way. I am not a reasonable person. As a matter of fact, in the middle of that, I just freaked out. I melted down and I started listing all the reasons that this would never, ever work. I don't want to bring a child into the world destitute. And what about all the things that we want to do? And what about our future? And how are we going to feed this kid? And I just started rambling off things that were just ridiculous, you know, and, and just kept going and going and going. And finally, probably a hundred minutes into this conversation, I stopped long enough to take a breath and Ashley looked over very calmly and she said, Austin, I just want to start a conversation. You, you don't have to freak out. To which I raised my fat little short finger and I pointed it at her and I said, don't you think I know that? I know I don't have to freak out. I am choosing to freak out right now. At which point she rolled her eyes. She said, well, let me know when you're finished and went and looked back out the, the window. And that was the end of the conversation. That was all there was to it. And, and I remember driving home in kind of embarrassed silence the rest of the way, thinking, you know, what were we going to do? What was the future going to look like? I, I was scared. I felt a little vulnerable. And really the thing that got me going the most, and, and maybe you've been there, maybe you experienced something like this, was the loss of this little thing as a culture that we value more than almost anything else. It's this thing called control. And I felt control over my time, over my priorities, over my money. All of that's starting to slip through my fingers. And maybe if you're like me, things go in the same sequence for you as they do in my life. That when control begins to go out the window, peace and joy typically are quick to follow after it. So there are a few things in our lives that have the power to alter how we experience joy or peace, like our ability or inability to control the variables around us. And as a culture, we've come to this understanding, this mentality, that joy and peace are something that are byproducts of what we do. 
we begin to think that we create them, that the highest point of joy or peace that we can experience is something that I manipulate, control, or create with my own hands. And so it becomes very understandable with that kind of a mindset, the mindset that I often find myself in, that when we lose the ability to have sway over the variables in our lives, that, that joy and peace in our lives quickly dissipate. And the reaction oftentimes, as I've talked with people, and to be honest, as I've experienced in my own life, is that along the way we have this belief that the more that I control, the more joy and peace I can have. The more that I can control things, the more that I can control my family, my finances, my future, my job, my whatever, there's this deeply rooted belief that when I control more, I have more peace and I have more joy. And maybe you're listening this morning and you're just thinking, this guy's insane. This guy's got problems, right? Control problems. And maybe you're not like me. That'd be great. I hope you're not. And they come back next week, we'll have other stuff to talk about. But, but let me just put this out there just in case maybe you're wrong. Maybe you've uttered one of these phrases. Forget it. I'll just do it myself. Or, or maybe you like more coined phrases that sound like this. If you want something done right, you're going to have to do it yourself. Or good Christian men and women here in the room who are way better than this broken pastor up on stage. Maybe you got to church it up a little bit so you feel a little better about yourselves. When you say stuff like this, you use a phrase like this, God helps those who help themselves. Here's the thing, phrases like this have become the mantra the banner of our culture and our society, and along with them comes this voice that whispers that no one could bring me as much joy and peace as I do. And as the resident control freak in my household, I get that. I understand that. The only problem is it's not working. It doesn't work for me. It hasn't worked in my past. It won't work for you. And as a society, as a culture, as a generation, what we found is in the midst of our do-it-yourself mentality and our do-it-yourself culture, there is a notable rise in not just experience of, but in clinical levels of anxiety of worry, of fear, and of phobias. And it seems that the more we attempt to control, the more we find ourselves turning the pages of the self-help books, managing rising levels of stress and anxiety, and find an increasing void of joy and peace within. And if I could put a mirror right here and talk to myself, I would say the same thing I'm about to say to you. I would suggest today that our desire to control our own joy and our own peace in life is directly proportionate with our inability to sustain either. We cannot be the master of our own joy and we cannot be the master of our own peace and expect them to last for the length of our lives. So what do we do? What do we do when the circumstances of our lives are not conducive to joy, they're not conducive to peace, when we face obstacles, trials, or loss that would never under normal circumstances give us either of these qualities? Or what do we do when we lose control and can no longer feel like we can command joy or peace in our lives? 
And I will point you to the same hope we began in in week one today as we get going. Again, that, that phrase we spoke then is still true today. God can produce within me what I cannot produce myself. It seems to be the idea that Paul gets at, this early church pioneer and pastor, as he writes a letter to one of the early churches in Rome, who apparently struggled with many of the same issues that you and I face today. He writes in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, some incredible advice about peace and then joy in our lives. He says this, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing in God's glory. And as I read through that, we kind of arrived as a team at a big idea that summarizes what Paul's after. And I want to begin to unpack that just for a few minutes this morning. Here's what the big idea says. If you're a note taker, write this down. If you forget everything else, this will help you remember where we were this morning. Peace produced by what God has done results in joy that rests on what God will do. Peace produced by what God has done results in joy that rests on what God will do. Will do. See, Paul seems to indicate that joy and peace, peace and joy, are, are intricately connected, that one gives way to the other, and that for us to have a healthy beginning point, we have to start with this idea of peace. The problem is, he seems to indicate that we've been going about gathering peace in all the wrong places. What he really seems to say is this, that lasting peace requires a lasting source of peace. Lasting peace requires a lasting source of peace. The problem is that's not what we do normally. That's not our tendency. We don't go look for lasting peace in lasting places. We go to quick peace in quick places. Let me ask you if any of these questions give you a little bit of relief. Answer them mentally if you would. What life choice would your child have to make or stop making so that you could experience greater or longer lasting peace. Or maybe this one drives it home. What number would you have to have in your 401k or your investment portfolio to experience greater or longer lasting peace? What position in your company would you have to attain so that you could experience greater peace or longer lasting peace? Or maybe what cure would have to be discovered so that you could experience greater peace or longer lasting peace. Maybe for you it's a number on a scale, a future outcome or a relationship that needs to be mended or any other countless number of end results that would matter to you or that matter to me. See, all of us can quickly go to one of these things and go, yeah, you know what? I actually believe, there, there are ones for me, I actually believe that if that happened, I would experience a greater level of peace. And sometimes that is incredibly true, but the problem is none of these outcomes come with a guarantee. So your portfolio can finally reach that dream number that helps you feel comfortable and sleep at night only to watch the housing market fall apart the next week. We've experienced that as a nation, have we not? It's not guaranteed. You can reach that goal weight that you spent hours upon hours upon hours in the gym running after only to get an injury that puts you right back where you used to be. It's not 
guaranteed, your kids can finally make the decision you've been praying to God they would make and follow it up with two or three more that you begged God they would never make. See, without realizing it, the very same things that we believe would be agents of lasting peace can become the instruments that rob us, rob us of it in the end. And all of this, all of this, look, it all, it all points to a flaw, a, a hole, a gaping hole in our nature, my nature, your nature, is that we begin to look for lasting peace in temporary places. The things that we believe will comfort us and settle us the most are things that rise and fall day by day. And if you and I want lasting peace, as we've already said, we had better find a lasting source of peace. See, Paul makes it incredibly simple for us in this first verse of Romans chapter five. We've already read it, but let me read it again. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. He, he kind of gives us a, a one-two punch here. First, he says this, that, that peace in life requires peace with God. Don't be fooled. It doesn't matter how far up you go up the corporate ladder. It doesn't matter what kind of wealth you achieve. It doesn't matter whether your yard's cut and has no more brown spots or whatever the thing is that kind of pacifies you in the moment. None of those things endure. You want long-lasting, enduring peace in life. You had better begin by finding peace with God. See, the things we hold closest don't fix the mess we're in. They don't solve life's biggest questions. They don't deal with our failure, and they certainly don't cover over our sins, the things that seem to remain permanent. And when they expire, wear out, or leave, they leave us in the same mess they found us in. See, true peace comes from peace with God. You want peace in life? Go to your creator and make peace with him, which leads us to the second part. How do we do that? Maybe you're here and this whole God thing's brand new to you and you're just looking for answers. And I, I just want to give you the one that matters most this morning. It's this, peace with God comes from what Jesus did, not what I can do. When we try to engineer and create and fabricate our own peace, it will only last for a season, if that. Romans 5.1, again, the second half of that verse says this, we have peace with God because of what Christ Jesus, our Lord, has done for us. Get this, this is the incredible part about following after Jesus. This is what distinguishes Christianity from every religion in the world, is that every other religion is our attempt to manipulate life, to please a God that we are broken enough that we cannot fully please. See, there's no one doing the things that I've done in my life. I can look back on my history, and I have a tarnished record that I cannot go back in time and undo, nor can you only in following Jesus do we see God reach down from heaven and step into our equation to make things right with us. That's an incredible God. That's an incredible Father. And it's based on what he does for us, not what we do for him. See, Jesus took our death sentence. My history merits a response. We talked about that in a previous week. And God was just enough to promise he would come through on it. If my history merits a response, he gave one. But he also justified me. He took that response. He took that punishment. And he's made that available to you and to you and to me. 
that when God looked at you, he said, you know what, I'll take this one for him. I'll take that for her. I'll stand in the gap. I'll take it. One place even says that God credits the righteousness of Jesus to us. It's like you had a rich trust fund kind of parent and someone came in to collect on a debt and they said, you know what? They don't have enough funds, but I'm gonna take the wealth that I've established and place it over here so that when God looks at the ledger sheet of our lives, he sees the riches of the righteousness and goodness and faithfulness of Jesus, not the depravity and broke nature that I gather by myself. That's an incredible God. And to have peace with God simply means this, God, I need you, and I would rather place my faith and future on what you've done than my faith and future on what I can do. And maybe you're here and you've tried to make it more complicated than that. You don't have to work to prove yourself to God. You don't have to work yourself up to finally be good enough for God. All he asks is that you would stop trying to do it on your own and let him do what you cannot It's what it means when Paul says, place your faith in Jesus. It's looking at his sacrifice and saying, that's enough. It's more than I can do. And when we do that, when we arrive at this place, we can confidently do what Paul tells another church in a city called Philippi to do in the middle of difficult times. He says this, Philippians 4, 6 through 7, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done, then, everybody say then, then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Another translation of this writing says that God gives us peace that passes understanding, peace that doesn't make sense when your loved one passes away, peace that doesn't make sense in the middle of a financial crisis, peace that doesn't make sense when the doctor's news is not the news that we'd hoped or dreamed for, peace that surpasses obstacles, lives, or barriers. But to have that, to have that begins by making peace with God through Jesus. You want peace in life? You better begin with peace with God because our big idea hangs on it. Peace produced by what God has done, it's already done, just so you know, he already did it. He's not gonna do it again, it's available. Peace produced by what God has done results in joy that rests on what God will do. And that's the second thing Paul kind of looks at. He goes, hey, you want joy? You gotta start with peace. You don't have peace, you're not gonna get any joy. Romans 5.2, he goes on, he says, because of our faith, this faith that gave us peace with God, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege. Get this, you didn't deserve God's grace, he gave it to you because he's awesome like that. Where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Anybody got that friend that you can finish their sentences? Anybody got that spouse you've been married just long enough that you can get mad at them about what they're going to say? Before they say it, no, don't you say that, because you knew, right? When we begin to assess future pastors and future church pioneers or planters through an organization called Stadia that our church partners with, one of the phrases they use all the time in an assessment process we put those men through says this, the past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior. 
Past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior. What you've been doing is most likely what you're going to do. And you may ask, what in the world does this have to do with joy and God? See, when we allow God to establish our peace by what Jesus has done, we get to look back, for me, over 34 years, for some of you guys, very much longer. And you see this track record. doesn't mean life is always great or life is always pretty, but you see in the midst of the mess, God came through. He was faithful. He was good. He was merciful. He forgave you. He gave you a second chance. Your life should have been over, but somehow it's still moving. Your life should have been done, but somehow God was good to you. And you can even look back on the fact that there is a God who has defeated the death and the grave so that you can have life forever and go, you know what? If God could do that, I can handle what's coming through him. If God can handle this, I can look at God's past behavior and have joy because I can anticipate God's future behavior. Past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior. That's why we trust in a God who describes himself as faithful. His goodness, his love, his mercy are unchanged throughout all generations. And it allows us to be confident and have joy even in the ups and downs in life. See, when I learn to be confident... In the unchanging goodness of God, I can have joy in good times and bad times alike. The economy can falter. Here's the deal. I've got an in with a God who says he has the cattle on a thousand hills. He's got all the money and all the resources at his disposal. I don't have to worry. My kids can head down the wrong path, but I can trust that I have counsel from the good father who sees more than I can see and will follow my children down roads and into places that I can't go myself. I can blow it as a dad, as a spouse, or as a human being. And I know in the middle of my remorse and grief for those moments, God's mercy and his love haven't budged an inch. Even if disease defeats my body, I have promise of a new one. And when I look on God's past behavior, his faithfulness in my life, and he promises there's something after this one, I can trust in him for a new body, a new time that won't wear out, or get old, or broken, or sick. See, I used to tell people all the time, check your pulse. If you still have a pulse, God still has plans for you. But you know what? That's short-sighted. When your pulse is over, when your heart stops, God's still not done with you. There is a life beyond this one. And if he's faithful in this life, God will be faithful in the next one. We can have joy in any situation, in the midst of any crisis, with any loss, that other people would look in on and go, you are insane. Because apart from God's spirit dwelling within us, this kind of joy cannot be produced. It is from God and God alone. See, peace produced by what God has done results in joy that rests on what God will do. Here's my suspicion today. There are some of you who look at the future and it looks bleak. You don't know what it's going to be. You don't know what the variables are. And you're no longer capable of controlling what's around the corner. And your joy is compromised. I want to tell you to take heart, lift up your head. Because there's a God who longs to give you joy today. He, he doesn't promise what will happen in life. He doesn't promise the outcome of the circumstance you're in. But he promises to be there with you and give you joy no matter what that is. You have hope today because of the joy promised by Jesus. And there are others of you that what you've experienced in the past week have robbed you of peace. You ache over it. You grieve over it. 
whether it's something you've done that has been done or has happened around you, you don't know how to manage it or deal. And God wants to whisper into you what he gave his disciples in their saddest moments, his peace, his presence with you, his spirit residing within. And it's available to you today. And for some of us, let's just be real, we don't have peace because we've never made peace with God. And the good news is you don't have to fabricate that. You don't have to create something different. God is here and ready. All you have to do is say, you know what, God, I place my trust in what Jesus has done. Make me right with you. And you can have peace with God. You just have to cry out and ask him.